0: We look like we're doing something about this.
1: It's critical that you have people who can look at things from a different point of view. Value yourself, empower yourself from those places.
2: So today's episode of regular Leadership, I thought I would do something a little bit different. This year has been a remarkable year. We have had the pleasure of interviewing some amazing people you've listened, you've heard those conversations this year I've also celebrated 100 episodes released which is a milestone I'm someone who struggles to celebrate my milestones, listen if it's yours I'm all party hard I will celebrate you I will push you forward when it comes to mine I've always struggled to do that so this year, when I did Reach 100 episodes and had my wife interview with me, um, it was great. It was great to start to drink some of my own medicine. And I thought, wouldn't it be great just to compile little bits and pieces from some of the episodes across the year? I can't feature all of them, but there's some little snippets, little points that were made which I want to kind of build into today's episode. So take a step back, relax, listen to some interesting takes from some of the amazing guests I've had throughout this year. Let's go. I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with... The L&L <laughs> from LVL, London. I've got Louise Powell in the house. I've got Laurie Powell in the house. Unfortunately, Sister Victoria couldn't make it. What's the hardest decision you've had to make as a leader? While you're thinking, let me add something to that. And I know for me, it was back in the day when I worked in corporate and I had to let go a number of people. There's a people I had known and I worked with and just kind of got to that point where... It was 2008. Like People were getting let go left, right and center. An organization had to downsize. And it really, really hurt. And it hurt, but it wasn't about me. Because I still had a job. I still had a position. And I had to learn that no matter how you feel, this is not about you. This is about the people that you are that in your charge, that you're about to let go. So how can you park myself pity and shame and wherever it was I was feeling and really really focus on other people to ensure that they land in the best possible space and place for them and that was a really, really key lesson on my journey which I didn't think I will need to learn especially at such a young age but I had to some curiosity and things along your journey that as a leader you've had to be might have known about and you've stumbled across or you've had to learn in the moment to adjust
3: yeah, I think I've got a similar story where we, in a former organization, I was very close with the team and we built a very, very tight network. And because of the strengths as a leader, you care about the people, you care about not just their work life, but their personal life, because their personal life impacts their work life. So you've built up this connection with them and sometimes even their family members, but one member of a, a former team who, you know. I knew his wife. Outside of work, we we would have a connection. And then it came to an organizational decision to have to let um, some of the team go. And the person that was directly impacted was somebody in my team. And I think that was probably one of the most challenging situations because you're having to deliver a message of a decision that you haven't always necessarily made, but you have to be the mouthpiece to convey that message. And regardless of what you say, how you spin it, it is what it is. That person has to leave the business and you are the face of that message. And regardless of whether they understand that it's not your fault directly, there's still a lot of, you know, anger there and resentment there. So it changed the dynamic of that relationship that had become professional and personal, which I think was probably one of the most challenging times to deal with. And you overcome it by, again, you know, telling yourself the right stories. Around it, it's not necessarily your fault. I'm still doing what I can in a professional capacity to be able to support that person as much as possible. But at the end of the day, you can't be responsible for how somebody else interprets a business decision that's been made. So I would say that was probably one of the most challenging times. And I still wonder if I've got over that situation. It is what it is. For me, but similar as a business
4: decision, yeah. I have been complaining about the profitability of my department due to the fact that commission was an issue. So I don't know how to explain it, but people were making a lot of money but not selling the product that they're employed to sell. When I'm in front of the finance director, I would be saying, this is the issue. So they decided to change the commission, which impacted people's profits. I knew that that decision had been made because I had complained about it. And then when I am the one, to Laurie's point, giving that message to 800 staff, <laughs> no, actually it was 200 staff, the only bought team only, and saying, your permission for them to change quite dramatically, which is going to impact their pockets. They were not happy. You know, people left as a result. But it was a really difficult decision, you know. It was just difficult. I, should, I could have closed my mouth and not said anything to the financial Character, but I'm under fire every month. Well, I knew that that's why I wasn't being profitable And when they changed it, it impacted people's livelihoods. Yeah, it was challenging. Time.
2: It's always a pleasure, you know, having great one for conversations with people that you need to get to know. I've got like husband, father, like pastor, writer, pioneer, founder, for Ducker for like the accolade could just like. Real talk here. I mean, he's been in so many different areas, but we're just gonna start with and just call him brother Ayokunle. This morning, me and my wife having the conversation, I was like, on a regular basis, if we're going back and forth around with Jesus an introvert, an ambivert, an extrovert, like <laughs> this kind of conversation happened on a Monday morning in the house sometimes, yeah, <laughs> literally I woke up with this in my mind, but anyway, and but I was like, a lot of times Jesus withdrew, I went to, went to God, had that conversation with him, tapped into him and then we'll come back into the crowd and do something and rather than staying in the crowd and be like, yeah, look at me, he'll step away yeah. again and yeah. exactly what you talked about is exactly like that, where you're tapping back into the source. And all you're getting back from him, you're flowing into other people. And then you go back to the source. It's not about the group. It's not about the size, it's not about the film and popularity. It's around just utilising everything that God is putting inside of you, putting it out there and seeing him do do the great things he's going to do.
5: Once again, it goes back to the whole substance versus appearances. And, and the funny thing about that description is that, you know, things can appear that they look good, but then when you when you examine the substance of it, it's not actually good. You know what I mean, kind of thing. So he's giving us an example whereby I'm gonna make sure that I'm rooting and grounded in, in in who it is that I am, and that's you know he relationship with the Father, and that that, that allows whatever is happening on a substantial level, the substance level, to now exude on an parent's level or the counseling of other people. And I think sometimes, especially in this age of branding and marketing and everything looking good, it's so easy. The line's so thin where, especially if it's working, where if I can appear to be something that I'm not, oh, well, I'll keep up the show, you know what I mean, kind of thing. And then, we, if you see the time of our celebrities, like, and they always end up doing something crazy in mad, I'm thinking, why are you doing that? But it's because there's a the disconnect between substance and appearance. They're not actually exhibiting who they are. They're just projecting an image that they see works for you, that they're trying to live off. Eventually, as a human being, we can only live doing that so long before you crash, you know what I mean, kind of thing. So, that's why knowing your why is so important, and why is internal. You know, what I mean, you don't always see it, you may see the what or the how, the method, but the why is always going to have good, good, the overarching thing is going to keep what it is you're doing authentic and cause it to actually last and end strong. You know, and, and my like one of my goals is to end well, to finish strong. You know, I've seen so many people start. <laughs> you know, so I think that's another area actually, if I'm honest as well, that keeps my eyes peeled, end strong, you know, finish well. I know. I realised that one day I'm going to give an answer for everything I'm doing you know what I mean so I want to be able to stand there with boldness and confidence that you know yeah I finished <laughs> I did it well <laughs> you know what I'm saying Man, I told you that I was
2: going to cover the bars <laughs> you know I was going to cover that bars going to give you a little, a little uh, minute server you know just to uh, get you on get your mind
6: moving
2: <laughs> <laughs> have substance. <laughs> I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with someone who is a servant leader. He's a transformational coach, he's a business consultant, and he's someone who helps people to thrive, to learn how to thrive in a very complex and chaotic world that we are living. He's also a CEO of Bridge Business Transformation. He is an author of the book, Hand in the Shoulder, Finding Freedom on the Confluence of Love and Career. I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Grant Tate. When I used to build and develop software and project management, it's one of the things that I used to be really, really critical. Is you find those people who are influential. And I love what you said, where it's not always the people who have the hierarchical power that have the influence. But if you can find the people who have the influence, explain the new system, why you want to do it, get them in an early prototype, a pilot phase. Once they buy into it, it makes it so much easier to get everyone else on board. But if they don't buy into it, you're always going to hit a roadblock. And those who were like engineers and IT people, they never quite understood that. I'm like, no, there's a psychological to to this as well that you need to apply to it. So I kind
1: of love that example. That's right. And organizations sense, those people are not always like me. You have to realize that they come in various attitudes and backgrounds. And you so don't expect everybody to be the person who's got your kind of personality. It's critical that you have people who can look at things from a different point of view and to have that kind of influence. And, and that may be more, more critical than ever, that people who have a different style may be the most effective in the organization you're trying to change. How
2: do you decide who you want to work with? Because you work with a select few clients and you got, like I said, politicians, you got organizations consultancies. So you're very intentional around who you choose to give your time to. I'm curious as to do you have a like selection process, a criteria, is it a value matching thing? What is it that drives that?
1: Yeah, I don't have a checklist at all. I'm not a checklist kind of person. I it's it's conversations like this. Uh, you know, could uh, you know, af- after this conversation, then are you a person I'd be happy to work with? And, you know, so far I would say the answer (laughs) is (laughs) (laughs) yes. And what can I learn? By the questions you ask and by what you're curious about, uh, by the depth of your thinking, those kinds of things. And uh, if you were a potential client, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm, You know, the people part of the question is really critically important. We have a little exercise when we have a. I, I got an executive team together and we go through the people question and we do a little grid thing that says, who are the people who are the most productive? Who are the people who, are, who are, have the strong values? And we actually have them plot their key people on, on that. And when they are doing that, I can learn something about how they make those decisions. Are they balanced in their viewpoint? Are they uh, biased in the way they look at people? Those kinds of things. And so their decision process and just doing that little exercise is very telling to me and what kind of person they are. This company we did the survey with, their leadership and that team is all about the people. They, they are super competent in their science. Almost half of their staff is a bunch of PhD scientists. But they, they are really concerned about hiring the right people, developing them, and trying to do the right thing, as we would say. And that's, that's really important. And uh, that shows up in you know every decision they make. And it's all about what the leadership has, has tried to create. And so it's, you know, uh, and their CEO is just retiring. And uh, this is a guy that I admire because he's a person of strong values, and he injected that into this company. And the new CEO uh, is a scientist of some note, but he's top-notch when it comes to caring about his people. And so that's the kind of person that's easy for me to relate to. I have another client who has grown a uh, technical company over the past 20 years and is just stepping away as a CEO. And, uh, you know, he's wrestling with the I wrestling I wrestling's the wrong word. He's trying to decide exactly what do I do next? Because he's relatively young and our conversations have revolved around what do you care most about? What's consistent with your principles you've exhibited? all these talents of building a team and a successful company what does your inside guide tell you about what are the things you'd like to to do that uh, you can do for the world and take some time though it's, it's okay to go sit on a beach or you know or go, or go drive a tractor on your farm or something like that for a while. <laughs> But, uh, you know, what? You, you have a lot to offer. And so uh, back to the question is, what am I called to do?
2: I have the founder of She's the Boss International, a multi-award winning entrepreneur who's been in the, in the game for almost like two decades. She's been doing this since she was at school. You know what I mean? Since she was at university. So she's not old. She's a young 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 woman but i got the amazing daniela in the i'm saying the booth with me today what do you say to people who say i'm unemployable and i can't work for someone because that's where you were and you had that you tried different things that didn't quite work out for you do you really believe that there are some people who are just unemployable
7: yeah me <laughs> I have, I am evidence of that. I think there's certain people that are just not born to be, I don't want to say controlled because that sounds disrespectful, but I like to be in charge of my own time. I have an issue and, and I don't know where it came from, but I don't like being told that I have to be somewhere because you told me to be. I've, and I've always had a problem with that, even at school. One of the key issues that I used to have at school was being kept in a classroom. I didn't want to be in the classroom. I remember my maths teacher kicking me out of the class and it turned into a big hoo-ha. Kicking me out of the class because I kept walking out of the class and walking around the block. We had blocks in school. And then I would just come back and sit down. So she kicked me out because actually you're clearly not serious about this. And actually I was just bored. I don't want to sit here. I've done my work. Leave me alone. Like Why do I have to sit here because you told me to? And that was always the thing. I remember the science teacher kicked me out for the same kind of thing. Too busy talking, you're not doing your work. Why are you not doing what we're telling you to? Because I don't want to. So I I very early on, well, not so early on. When I was in primary school, I wasn't necessarily like that. Although in primary school, I remember one of the teachers saying to my mom, Daniela would achieve a lot if she would just stop talking so much. Which now I always remember because I feel like the irony of it because now I get paid to speak a lot. <laughs> so clearly you were wrong. But in secondary school, yeah, they couldn't really hold me down i wasn't miss i wasn't a badly behaved child i just wanted to do my own thing and the same applied when i then went into work i want to do my own thing i don't want you telling me what to do and if you're a boss of a company and you've got somebody that is like that you can't it's it's very difficult to manage them and therefore that person is really unemployable and i think if somebody's in that situation if you have skills in other areas, you need to work out how you can generate revenues that don't require you being in a job. Because all all that will happen is you're going to end up in a situation like what I did, where you're going from job to job to job to job and that doesn't look good on, on a CV and it's going to be a very difficult you to progress if you, you can't stay in one one spot for an extended period of time, which was what my my issue was. So that period didn't exceed 12 months. And then by the end of the 12 months, I saw a, an advert for a business startup program, which was being delivered by my previous university. And I signed up. And on that program, I teamed up with a friend that I'd been friends with at university and then two other friends that weren't on the program, but we'd kept in touch with, and we set up the business. But, and I think for them, the business was kind of a side thing, whereas for me, it was the main thing.
2: Do you think that you have in that mentality actually makes you a better business partner as well as a better leader with those who do work for you because do you then go over and above or create an and environment where people can have the flexibility and freedom that you also want hence why you decided to be a boss
7: no <laughs> the exact opposite actually <laughs> the exact opposite so with my first business, in total, I had 15 members of staff. Not all at the same time. I think at any one time, the most I had was eight. But in total, I employed 15 people. And I kind of did try to take that approach and try to be the boss that I believed that I would have wanted. Somebody that kind of isn't really too strict on time, is more output focused and doesn't ask too much questions, isn't trying to micromanage. And it didn't work. <laughs> at all i was a terrible manager i wasn't i I kind of just left people to their own devices and what that meant was no one knew what they were supposed to be doing nobody was doing what they were supposed to be doing and it led to a lot of kind of issues within the business i don't necessarily think that i had the understanding of what it took to be a good manager because i was too entrepreneurial i didn't want to be managing people actually what i wanted to be doing was going out and kind of meeting people, creating opportunities, organizing the events so that the business actually was a social enterprise. So the idea behind it was we'd organize corporate events, celebration events, Christmas parties, award dinners, networking, that kind of thing. And then the funding from that, or the revenues, would then enable us to provide training, development, showcasing opportunities for young people, and particularly young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. As it actually happens, what the business model became was we kind of became like a charity. So I applied for funding, was very good at writing funding applications and was been was able to basically grow the business based on the funding and also the sponsorships that we were able to generate. And that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to focus on that stuff. I loved working with young people. I loved putting on the youth and community events that we did. I didn't want to have to deal with somebody's not showing up for work or somebody was supposed to be here at 10 and they didn't show up till 2. And I didn't like firing people either. So I used to get, my friend Leanne was working for me as an admin assistant. So I used to get her to fire, I'd stay at home because there was no space in the office for me. She'd fire them. <laughs> and I'd be at home like, have you done it yet? What did you say? <laughs> so yeah, I, I was not very good in that respect. Now, a kind of outcome of that and some of the issues that I had with staff, because I had a lot of staff issues. We had to fire quite a few people. I had somebody... Store my intellectual property, another one tried to sue me for 30, well not tried, they did, take me to a tribunal for 30,000 pounds. So there's a lot of problems. So when She's the Boss, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not having any staff, this is just not for me, because the types of people that I want to work with are actually the types of people that run their own businesses, not people that are, Employed. that need to be managed, because mm. I don't want to manage them. But actually, recently, this year in particular, I've realized I'm gonna to have to employ some people. Mm-hmm. At the moment, all of my team are outsourced. So I have outsourced marketing support, I have outsourced a VA. And actually, I say outsourced, but they have they're part of the team. But they're not on payroll. But I recognize that I'm gonna need some a few people actually internally. So I've been kind of trying to reckoning with okay, how do I do this differently from how I did it the first time? And I know because I advise clients on how to do it effectively all the time. But there is still that trauma <laughs> of my first experience. And also, I think my, in terms of my learning and my development, I recognized that I was trying to manage people in a way that I wanted to be managed, but I don't want to be managed. That's why I run the business. So actually, it's not an approach that is an effective one. I'm aware of that now, so I know I can do better. And I, as I said, I encourage my clients to kind of take a similar approach. You do want entrepreneurial people in your teams. You do because it's beneficial, but what you don't necessarily want is entrepreneurs in your team, which is a wholly different thing. Entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really where, what I didn't work out. I also was terrible at recruitment, but that's a a separation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Terrible at recruitment. Absolutely horrendous. But again, we learn, we live, we grow, we develop. And I think I'd be much better at that now. And in terms of kind of flexibility, I still in terms of how I wanna grow the business and and recognizing that I am gonna take on staff, there are certain things that I will still want to implement. So flexibility, focusing on outcomes and outputs, as opposed to like, what time did you start versus what time did you finish? I wouldn't ever want to create an environment where anybody felt imprisoned, like how I used to feel imprisoned. It sounds like you've, you've, based on what you've been
2: through already, You even recognize, like even right from the start, if, for example, you're not great at recruitment, the kind of people you're bringing into the organization are not going to be great. And they're just like IT terminal garbage in, garbage out, which is what it is when you recruit people who aren't great and you're trying to leave them to their own devices, they don't produce anything. But if you can get it right at that point in time and have that space and culture where they are entrepreneurs and they're driven to deliver results and all kind of stuff you can probably actually get end up with what it is in wanting where you don't have to micromanage and step in but more importantly you can actually ask them how they'd like to be led as well so rather than you even making that mm-hmm. assumption based on how it was for you so what do they need as individuals as well but that's all growth and learning which you've had that time and space to recover and now you can fully you can fully step into it for sure
7: I had the therapy to work through the trauma <laughs> <laughs> coming out of the other end <laughs> it's been a journey
2: If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Friend, sis, Miss Aggie Mintuma, who is the CEO of Mahogany Inclusion Partners. I, I love what you were saying around <laughs> titles blind us. It's interesting. Titles are attractive. Like, titles are something you like when you're like, oh, I want to become a director, a VP, a CEO, wherever it is. And that's the level that you aspire to. But there is a there's a cost to the title. And when you're talking about titles blindness, that's literally what, what kind of came up for me. That That's not spoken about enough around, even if you do get the titles, what does that create? What does that blind you from being able to see or being able to act or maneuver in a particular way? So I think it's a, it's a really important point that you made there.
8: Yeah. And I think they come with all these expectations, isn't it? So when you're looking at it and it's sort of, you know, hindsight is always amazing, isn't it? But when you're looking at it from a, you know, I want to be there. I want to have that ambition. You're assuming a level of, they know everything. You're also assuming a level of fulfillment from that. Like, when I get there, I, know, I I'll, I'll know I've arrived or I'll know that I've achieved or whatever that is. But actually when you do get there, all of those other things you had with you in the more junior, world, they're still there. You're still thinking to yourself, okay will I get found out perhaps or do I really deserve to be here or what if I make a mistake and they want me to know everything but I don't know everything I should know everything so all these things are still there.
2: Well there are things that you you worried about along your career because you talked about that journey going through that journey and still going through that journey because we are all works in progress consistently learning about ourselves but are there things as you rose up in your career you felt I need to know this. This is a this is a must. This is a foundation point for me. And it might not be the truth, but you just you just personally felt I need to know this.
8: Um I think the things I thought I needed to know, I did need to know. So I think for me as as an HR and people profession, it was always been important for me to connect to the why. And my team hear me say that all the time. What's the why? Let's start there, and then you know, reverse engineer backwards. So, why does this organization exist? As an example, exist to whatever it is that exists to do. And ultimately, it's a commercial entity, right? And I have not worked for any charities yet, as as a as an internal person. So, it's a commercial entity. So, what that what does that mean for what I do as, as an individual? which is look after people, blah, blah, blah. So making those connections to, to, the, to the business case. So I think one thing I always said to myself, I need to know, and even now I still carry that through with my clients, is really understanding the purpose of the organisation and what are the key drivers, what's the business speak of the, of the organisation as well, what are the C-suite leaders, what are their challenges that they're thinking about, and then how do I, in my role as a people professional, Support, feed in, build on that, so we can do that together. So I think that's one thing I've always said I need to know, and always encourage my team, whether it was internally or as a consultancy, uh, to do the same. What else? What else? What else? Definitely, I think the the piece around knowing their people, not the title, not the function but the people themselves. So often I would uh, surprise people by asking one of the first things, oh, tell me about you. Oh, this is the job I do. I've been here for this many years. Awesome. Let's come back to that. I definitely want to hear that. But who are you? You know, share what you feel comfortable sharing, but who is you outside of work and what's really important for you? And what are your values if if you've connected to those? So that piece around really getting to know the person. Because again, a lot of those pieces around potential imposter syndrome or fitting in and all these things they are happening for a lot of different people in different ways. So being able to lower that, spread some love, I guess, is what I'm trying to do. Is really important.
2: Did you find it hard? In fact, I'm going to fuggle go to Mahogany Partners, Inclusion Partners. You started another business before this where you were running dolls, Black Dolls. Can you share a bit more about how that came about and what that was like holding that down? And you were still working full time at that point in time as well.
8: Yes. Yes, I was. So um, Black Beauty Dolls, it was called at the time. And um, as I mentioned before, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I did a lot of reading and self-studying around child psychology, etc. And one of the things I came across was, especially in the formative years, but definitely later, representation matters. See the link. Nice little golden thread going through everything that I do. So that representation piece is really important in your children's toys, in your children's books, in the programs that they watch, etc. The puzzles, whatever it is that that, surround them. And as I looked around, there wasn't much at the time. And my daughter's 16 now on her way to 17. So if you think almost 18-ish years ago, if I've done my maths right, maybe 17 years ago, the options, the choices just, just were not there. And for a little while, I had friends and family in the States. So they'd send me dolls because I said, my daughters need to have dolls that reflect them because they need to understand that actually they're beautiful. And if I rewind back to my own experience growing up, the couple of dolls that I had were blonde, blue-eyed, you know, white dolls. So I'd look at that. OK, that's pretty. That's beautiful. Oh, look at the advert over there. That's pretty. That's beautiful. Another blonde, you know, blue eyes. Let's look at the covers of the magazines. So instinctively, that means I'm not because I don't have straight blonde hair. I don't have white skin and I don't have blue blue eyes. Did not want that for my daughters. So initially it was my friends sending dolls, my family sending dolls. But then I started thinking, well, other people must be thinking the same thing did a bit of research then Ben started uh, Black Beauty Dolls and I am a very spiritual, spiritual person the name actually came to me in a dream Black Beauty Dolls so I was like yeah cool that's the name of the organization and as the name suggests <laughs> I would say we sold dolls of different ethnicities to be fair it was it was they weren't just black dolls but there were baby dolls there were fashion dolls I, I even developed for myself which is just amazing it was A labor of love. I drew it, designed it, a little black ballerina plush doll thing, found a manufacturer in China, got all the CE number things that you need to get. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I'd go to fairs and it was never it was never going to be my number one job. It was more of a labor of love because I knew I was helping parents diversify their children's toys. And one of the things, and one of my friends actually pinpointed it back then, she said she thought she was a white woman and she loved one of the statements in our About Us um, piece, which was, this is definitely about diversifying children's toys, but it's, it's also for white children because their toys should reflect the world that they actually live in as well. So again, I think the words inclusion were in there too. So you can see this golden thread. That was Black Beauty Doll, So I rolled that up to start Mahogany. Um, and equally, if you now go to Argos, you can see a broader range of dolls as well. So the needs became um, a little bit less as well. So,
2: let's, just, let's just chop it up with my brother, who is a lawyer. He is a writer and a columnist for spaces like The Voice. He does a lot of work with... It's racism. He's normally snatching off edges of LinkedIn and just putting his thoughts out there in an unfiltered, enriching way, which I love to read. And he is a man of many, many talents that we're definitely going to delve into today. I have Terence Channer in the building.
6: So I approach and I say, Dr. I call him Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith, Terence Channer. Dr. Smith jumps up. Startled taken aback, amazed, and says, issues the immortal words. Verbatim. "Terence, you never told me you were a black man.
2: So I'm not, I'm not you. And in my head already, there are a lot of thoughts that come up in the best way to respond. And none of them are coming from a good Christian soul <laughs> right now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what was, in that moment in time, what were you thinking?
6: Okay, when something like that happens, you don't have the chance to respond. And sometimes it's, it's good that you don't have a chance to respond because your response might be the wrong one. So, uh, I carried on as if nothing happened. I shook his hand. I went to the conference. But there was, it, 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 it was a trigger. It, it was a trigger. It was a catalyst. And I don't think it was a catalyst for bad. I think it was a catalyst for good. What Dr. Smith had done, and we all do it. Let's, let's be honest, we all do this, it's, it's instinctive, it's intuitive, is that when you speak to someone over the telephone, you begin to paint a picture. That is unavoidable. I am not going to criticise Dr. Smith from painting me as a white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, six-foot-two, white man. I'm not going to criticise him for that. And in fact, if Dr. Smith had not, and his name is not, not Dr. Smith. I'm going to call him Dr. Smith. If Dr. Smith had not disengaged his brain from his tongue, I would never know that that was what he was thinking. And I would not be able to tell you this story today. That story has so many positives and I've not viewed it as a negative because after that happened, Dr. Smith began to invite me to lunch, ring me up. I was a curiosity. Now, I know a lot of us will say, well, that's a negative. And in my view, you could see it as a negative in that I became Dr. Smith's one and only black friend for that short period of time. But I've never viewed it as a negative because I was glad that I was able to smash a stereotype so spectacularly of a white lawyer. So he had in his mind, white man, white lawyer. He'd read my correspondence. A white man has written this correspondence. He'd read my letters. He'd listen to me on the telephone and he's speaking to a white man. Now, it's not a case of me acting like a white man. It's a case of English is my first language. I write in English. I speak in English. I'm a lawyer. I will speak like a lawyer. I'll speak like a black lawyer, a white, I am just a lawyer. I'm speaking, a fireman goes into a fire and he fights the fire as a fireman. There isn't a black way to fight the fire, or a white way to fight the fire. You just get the water, and the foam, and you firefight. You don't. There isn't a black way to firefight. Now I know you might say, well, actually, there's a difference in that because, you know, black people are supposed to speak with a certain tone. <laughs> We're supposed to give give it away, give the game away. Yes and no. I mean, your accent is your accent, and I. Have no criticism of Dr. Smith. I was happy to have smashed his stereotype of what a lawyer should look like. And I got invited to his male voice choir concert. (laughs) He then shared his marital problems with me. It was an interesting episode. And so, therefore, the answer to the question is, which is, have I been viewed as a black man first and a lawyer second? The answer is in that particular case, no, I was always viewed as a lawyer first until I pitched up with my black self (laughs) and smashed the stereotype. And of course, when I go to court, I mean, when I go to court, I'm dressed as a lawyer. And therefore, when I turn up at the desk, what you normally get is, are you solicitor or counsel? There isn't are you the client? I never get that. So when I go to a civil hearing, because I do civil litigation, I never get, are you the client? And, and crime is different. When you do criminal defence work, I've heard stories where barristers, black barristers, female and male, have been asked whether they are a witness or whether they are the defendant and that's unfortunate but i don't do civil litigation so i don't really come across that so that one story i think probably sums up what you you can imagine i mean nowadays if i'm dealing with a solicitor on the other side for the defendant my picture's is going to come up straight away anyway so but yeah i think i i hope i've answered your question
2: you have live your quotes That's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to. Go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk, subscribe to Live Your Quotes. It's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote, how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you. As well as bits and pieces, it might be books I'm reading. It might be some other content I'm tapping into and some bits and pieces around the podcast. It's a nice, short, succinct newsletter, which I know you're going to enjoy. But to enjoy it, you need to subscribe to it. So again, if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you'll be able to get access to Leisure Your quote newsletter. Now let's get back into the episode. filmmaker, consultant, passion around racism and sport and changing that. The organisation Refreshed Sports Consultancy. You'll have seen his films like from Refresh Films as well. So he's a man of, of many talents. He's also a very humble man. I've been interested to learn like how did my guest, Leon Mayne, get to where he is and start to do what he does. So welcome sir. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. How do you build those kind of networks and develop those kind of relationships? Because it can't, I'm sure it must have felt daunting sometimes, I mean, reaching out, having those kind of conversations, especially in a field, in an area, like I said, there was lack of representation already, but you managed to, one, find the Black people who worked in those fields, but not just find them, but build relationships where they gave you opportunities. And then you you built on that with the likes of real friend that you just mentioned. How did you do that? Because that's a skill. Do
9: you know what? I think
2: everything about my identity at that time,
9: and also, you know, this landscape of underrepresentation kind of worked massively in my favor. I believe I was in the right place at the right time. And I had enough emotional intelligence and self-awareness to do things and be myself in a way that was, I don't know, I don't want to say attractive to others, but was just kind of like a space of their normality within a space of a lack of diversity and a lack of relatable figures. So, for example, when I would be at a sport event in a media area, Rodney Hines and Darren Lewis weren't there, I would be the only black person for sure. Um, but yet, we'd be covering a sport where a number of the athletes like the majority of times would be black. So therefore they're walking through a mix zone and there I am with a microphone or a dictaphone and they're like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Equally very few kind of black agents, etc. I was part of that community. So, you know, I had a connection with them and I kind of feel that they were willing to help me uh, and to connect with me because they kind of felt a sense of community and, that, I, I believe, kind of helped to my advantage. And I think they saw that their, their clients connect with me in a different way. The things I was interested in, you know, would connect with the athletes and did connect with the athletes. And, you know, I, I would be, you know, this is late 20s, early 30s. I'd be in nightclubs and I'd see them. And I wouldn't ask them about what are they doing at work, what's going on with football. I'd just talk about music maybe or whatever it would be within that space because I played, you know, I say I played it the right way. It didn't feel like I was being strategic. It just felt like I was just kind of being a normal guy saying, not a workspace, to so just calm down. And I think people, particularly younger people, can misread things in that, and they can develop a relationship that, you know, doesn't work in, in the right way. So I kind of feel that you know, my, my community, the people around me, the good habits that they had rubbed off on me, and I was able to kind of build relationships that others weren't. The key word is relationships, and, you know, I believed I was a relatable figure in a world of white men who were older in grey suits who only wanted to speak to these guys about how they'd played the a football match or the controversial thing that had happened in their game or career.
2: I think for me it sounds very much, you saw the human, other people saw the football player, and that's kind of where you get that, and I've talked about this around the right? the authenticity, but it's it's what makes a difference. You don't want just to be spoken to for the thing that you are known for because we're so multifaceted and you've been able to react and reach out to the human person. You're naturally going to stand out anyway, as well as the fact that you're black and all of them, so many different things like that. But that is very, very different.
9: Spot on. And and, and to me, you know, I've been in situations where I'd be with a, a media pack or a media group and the sports person would walk into a room and everyone would run and swamp around them. And actually, I, I was in a privileged position where I was mainly doing feature reporting, so I could kind of hold back. I wasn't there for a news line, for one line to sell a product or to lead a story. And so
10: I'd hold back and I'd normally
9: kind of just start talking to the entourage of the said athlete. And that can be cousin, brother, best friend, whoever it would be. And we'd just talk about, life and stuff and we connect and actually by forming those bonds with the people around the athlete you know i guess they would go and say that guy was actually all right you know and it wasn't again this strategic kind of cold way of trying to find a way into an athlete it was just seeing people as human beings and i think that helped me massively at the time as well because there's a lot of nervousness around journalists and you know even when i do interviews occasionally of, like, go and worry a little bit about how I'm going to be represented. Like, is half the quote going to be cut up so I'm actually not given the full context of what I'm trying to say? And it's projected in a way that actually doesn't project me to the world in the way that I would like to be. And I believe is a true reflection of myself. So, when people go into those situations to get something from them that's kind of anchored in truth and honesty and realness, you know, there's got to be a trust. And to form that trust, in that environment is really difficult. So, you know, this is about, we're all people. And I think the principles of where I've had success, you know, could be applied right through whatever business you're involved in. I know certainly from my perspective, if I connect with somebody and I trust somebody and I value somebody, I often look for a reason to work with. them, And I believe that I've certainly benefited from that over the years in the sports industry. I believe that people have come to me because they feel um, like there's connection. I'm really grateful to those people for that.
2: I have someone who navigates a space that I found really, really interesting around faith, around social justice, but she is a political theologian. She was previously a teacher or two, shall I say? And you're currently now doing your postdoctoral research at Durham University. I have Dr. Selena Stone in the building. How are you doing?
0: Hi, it's good to be here. It really is.
2: When you think about the church and think about social justice, personally, it's an area where the church has been silent in a lot of key areas. I know, obviously. Two years ago, Black Lives Matter and everything else happened and there was a lot more people, a lot more vocal. And then, like most corporate spaces, actually kind of want to be quiet again. And uh, As someone who is navigating both behind the scenes, but also in front, actually, and driving this change, how do you find it as, not only as a, a black woman, because again, that's another element of what you're doing, but you're a black woman who's leading faith and who's challenging and trying to be like, well, this is what we believe in. We need to practice this and very much action irritates it. So how do you find it? <sighs>
0: <laughs> <That>
2: deep sigh.
0: <laughs> you know what it is? I think I also, and I sigh because I have multiple thoughts. For me, when I think about organisations, I see a kind of tension in that, there's a sense of like there needs to be an urgent response and that urgent response can often be very surface level. So it's a black square, it's the diversity day, it's the tweeting about how terrible racial justice is. That's the kind of immediate short-term response that gives people a signal that says, we look like we're doing something about this this issue. And this is the same for whatever kind of justice issue it might be in any organisation. But then that's not always combined with an actual serious long-term strategy for creating change. And so that's when I start to get a bit irritated because often I think these questions around justice and inclusion are actual culture problems within organisations. But rather than taking that approach, people instead do their public signalling that, old, how terrible this is. But then there's no actual action to change what's happening inside. You have some organizations who will, for example, will focus on the optics and think if we get more representation in our Instagram page, then that might fix what's happening on the inside. I, I always say to people the optics will take care of themselves if you deal with the deeper cultural problems. But the issue is that I think some of the pressure, I think, honestly, is that sometimes the communities that are demanding this are themselves impatient, and rightfully so, because for decades, for centuries, there's been a kind of slowness to respond. But that kind of pressure for an immediate action is what sometimes leads to these short-term actions which are not actually dealing with the long-term problems. So I often find that frustrating because people want to stop with those short-term actions and not do the deeper work. Um, but i well, I understand that lots of organizations have multiple agendas and issues, but I also think that people sometimes think, especially within the church space, that this is some political issue that they're being dragged into this secular political issue and lose sight of the fact that at the most basic level, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you're living out this this whole new community ethic, which we see in the scriptures, where people, regardless of their race, gender, are included and welcomed, then I can't understand why you're even waiting for there to be a secular movement to actually take this seriously. So it's, it's, it can be frustrating for me, and I do limit how much time I spend talking about this, because I also say to people, I am a Black woman. I've never, I'm not an expert in diversity and culture change, And so I can give you my opinion on this, but there are people whose expertise is in culture change within institutions and organisations. And those are the people who you need to be employing to do this work, because I don't really know how you shift the whole culture of an organisation. I can give you some thoughts on my experience of my of my work, but I haven't test this tested any of this out in practice. So there's gonna be a limitation to what I can offer. And I shouldn't have to, because that's not my job. You know, like I'm not employed by you as a strategist, as a kind of senior executive leader, as a director of anything. And so I, I can't be expected to do this additional, quite important work for free, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> or without having the training to do it. So I think that can happen in, in, in various places.
2: That's such a one in my head. I was already, I was like, clicking. I was like,
0: come on, come on. on. <laughs> Forget it.
2: But you're in a position where because of who you are and because of what you do and because of the background you have with the PhD and the theory knowledge and all of that, naturally speaking, people will look to you to be like, well, you're in a position right now, you can you can step into that, you can share some love, you can share some, some ways where we can actually manoeuvre. You make a really good point where it's like, well, one, I could do it, but that's not my role. And for me, that goes back into ways earlier learn around setting boundaries. I think so easily we can step into, we wanna do something and we lean into it and we can easily get used by institutions and organizations without recognizing that that's what's happening for us so being able to have those clear boundaries is super super important but then also being like but other people who do this great works so if you really are serious then you bring those people in if you're not you just want to see like you're doing something this this in itself the actions speak louder than words. works so even the way that you approach that and the way you talk about it actually really makes makes a difference and reveals do you really want to do something about this or do you want to look like you're doing something about this?
0: Definitely. And I think I'm, I've learned that to set that boundary because I've been in meetings where I realised that you've called that, a place has called together various Black or Asian people, for example, to talk about diversity. And our qualifications are that we're researchers or we're academics in our particular field that has nothing to do with these questions and even if it does we don't always have the the understanding of the organization itself to know how you would implement changes so then it just becomes a kind of very vague discussion people sharing their feelings their experiences but there isn't a move towards a clear strategy and that then just becomes a waste of everybody's time so i think i'm quite i've been in enough of, in enough of those conversations to know now that they're not for me <laughs> i know what i can offer into the conversation but if i don't see people who are directors and who have experience of creating culture change in the room to talk about the details of, of what's going to happen. And this is me as an organiser now saying, we can talk about the theory, but what are the concrete actions that are going to happen on the basis of this? I think if I don't see that, then for me, it just feels like a, a conversation, but it's not leading anywhere. And I don't think we can we have the time anymore to kind of just be satisfied with conversations.
2: You've studied you've done your PhD and now part of your role is doing a a postdoc. What is it around like reading, research, like that side of things that you seem to really enjoy?
0: I just, I love, I'm just very curious. I'm very curious. I like to understand. I like to, I like to understand. I like to explore. I like to know what's going on. That's really what, that's really what it is. Research is like is like moving past the the ideas to the like what's actually happening here and how can we interpret what we're seeing. That's a side of it that I really like.
2: Has the research revealed anything about who you are and your experiences over the
0: years? That's a really good question. I think that my research has actually has helped me to process my experiences, definitely. And in, in a way, research has helped me to to figure out how much I loved research. Like, I didn't really know that for, I didn't plan to be an academic, for example, or to be working in a university at all. I didn't even have this kind of job on my radar as a young person, I, and every step I've taken in terms of my study has been out of curiosity and a sense of calling to the work, not because I thought, "Oh, I'm going to get a PhD and become an academic and work at Durham." That you know, the, the, there's not many jobs in my field anyway, so that wouldn't have been a wise plan to have <laughs> <laughs> written down if I was going to make one. But it's it's been very curiosity led, actually. And so I think that it's I research has been for me like a playground of I've got to explore different areas and different thoughts and perspectives. And it's kind of been quite playful and enjoyable. Even my PhD, a lot of people hate PhDs. They hate their own. They hate doing them. They have mental breakdowns midway through. And it's, it's obviously very difficult, but I really enjoy doing it, which I didn't expect. And so I, in the process of doing the research, I've realised how I'm wired, how my brain works. And it's, it's really helped me, I think, to just understand what really makes me tick. New thoughts, new ideas, innovation. I love all of those things.
2: But then does that curiosity also take you to implementation?
0: Definitely. Like there's no, for me, there's no point in doing this just for the sake of it. Like all of this is for the sake of, so what now do we do? Whether that's a case of how now do we talk about this issue? What action do we now think is necessary how can we make this thing, this particular thing right? How can we make this better? That's all, that is like driving me, my curiosity all the time.
2: Co-owner, the executive vice president and global CFO at Worldwide Oilfield, And my guest, Rainy, also does a lot more than that. But oh, we're going to get into that because she's a very, very busy woman. She's also a soon-to-be author. You're talking about letting go, and I think back to what you said previously. You, as the founder's daughter, I'm sure you'll have had a number of times where people have been like, well, you must have had it easy. It's, it's your dad's company. That's why you've been able to navigate to the space you've you've navigated to. Yet you started right from, I'm going to say the, bu- the bottom, and it said you started off in in a particular department, HR, and navigated all the way through it. But how have you been able to deal with all the one rising through the ranks and all the different comments you've had to be able to get to where you got to?
11: Mm, just keep going. There have been people that have even asked me, it's like, well, why are you here if you have so many challenges? Just go find another job. I'm like, yeah, I, probably, I can find another job. I get that. But here's the, the reality is this. People are people. People are going to challenge me no matter where I go. I am going to be challenged wherever I go. So guess what? If I can figure out what that challenge is here in this organization and make a positive impact, then I'm going to give it my best. Absolutely. So I think it's that, that perspective that I, if I can use this platform and really build it for that better purpose, for that higher purpose to really make someone else's life easier, better, that drives me. And like I said, even before, if there's a challenge, I'm like, just bring it on. How tough can you be? I mean, I've been there. I've been underground, six feet underground. I've been there. All right. You want to push me down further? Push me down further. Because guess what? I have a higher power that's working in my life. I, again, I say it very openly. I'm a God girl. I have such a higher power working in my life. He will find a way. He will find a way. Just like, you know, we see like all these heavy concrete pads. And out of nowhere, there's like this little, little green leaf shooting out from the cracks. Somehow, I'll find a way. That's part of my purpose.
2: When did your I'm going to say love and your when did you get clarity around your spiritual journey and your love for God? When when did that come from?
11: Ah, uh, my spiritual journey. was So, uh, I was born a Hindu, right? In in India, basically, you're born into a religion. And that Hinduism was meant to be more of a lifestyle. So you know, I was kind of going with it. My, my, my mom specifically is still very traditional, very Orthodox Hindu. So even you know, growing up in the United States, in Houston, Texas, you know, we had to read scripture every day, all that stuff. So I was, I was taught morals and values and principles and respect and all of that from my childhood. But didn't really get the sense of why all of this, right? When I am six years old, I was in love with Krishna. Not a boyfriend, Krishna. Okay, because he was all about unconditional love. So that just fascinated me. It wasn't about the other gods and goddesses of wealth and of, you know, fortune and of knowledge. I didn't care about any of that. I'm like, whatever, love. It just fascinated me. So one thing kind of led to the next in my more, you know, later adult life. Uh, I was like, you know, I need to, I need more, I need to expand more of this. So in my dance days, actually, I went back to the five elements of the earth going, okay, well, Wind, earth, fire, space, and water. They all have their own elements and power, which is all in me as a human being. I'm basically a little ball of earth. Created a whole dance style off of that. So really started tapping into my spirituality and understanding of the elements and how they react within me. But that wasn't enough. I thought I was a Buddhist. And then I was like, wait a second. The underlying philosophy of life cannot be that suffering is inevitable. Yes, it is. But that's not the only thing. It's got to be more than that. Went to being a Taoist. Go with the flow okay, I can go with the flow. This is pretty cool, right? And if I can go with the flow, it can be love, it can be whatever comes my way. But I was still in search of purpose. Where am I going? Where am I going? And that led me to when I finally left actually India, and I came to Houston, Texas, which is my home. And I was just like surfing through TV channels. And I'd watched a few, you know, Creatures while back in India. And it'd be like Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and Crifo Dollar. These are the three people that (laughs) I'll kind of watch them, right? And I would watch them even in my tough days because they would give me a really cool, you know, positive message. I'm going to read them. I'll I'll listen to them. When I was in Houston and I was like, wait a second, that's Lakewood Church. That's Joel Osteen. I've been listening to him even in India. I've got to go. So it was that first Easter Sunday in 2008 when I went to church for the first time in my life. I had no idea what was going on. All I do know is that when I first entered that place, all I could do was cry. All I can do was cry. And then I wanted to learn more and more and more and more about it. It took me seven years, seven years to be able to say the name Jesus. I could not say the name because I feel like, oh my God, I'm betraying all these Indian gods and I'm a bad person and I can't do this. I'm betraying my family tradition and I'm supposed to be a good daughter, and it's like all these, you know, things in the back of your mind. That sense of freedom. And that spiritual, as I started learning more about Jesus and journey, and I saw the similarities between Jesus and Krishna and that the work is finished. It's not just karma, but it's about unconditional love. Everything started to make sense to me. I'm a logical person, right? I'm not just, don't just beat me something and say, oh, well, believe in it. No, I can't do that. I need to, my brain work in a certain way. So logically, I was able to say, yeah, we are free. Jesus came and the work has been finished. This whole world definitely can be free if they accept that freedom. If they have to, they have to just get in it, understand it. And that's when I understood love. Long-winded answer, but this is when I understood love completely. In 2014.
2: (laughs) This is one of the beauties I get having this podcast, listening to stories <laughs> like that, which are for me are very, are very fascinating, the journeys that we go through. And it just shows how, how much there is to life when we choose to stay curious and leaning and leaning to different things rather than close ourselves off to, because your, your examples, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm here something around love from six years old that's been important to you and that's been the journey and the search you've been you've been on it's like what is what is love when it comes to spirituality what's love when it comes to faith and when you found it you knew you knew what that was for you and that's amazing that's really really amazing
11: and i knew the power of it even in a business because that's why i say people are like love in business I mean, guess what that's my power that's how i understand people that's how I have a vision because I'm thinking about the people. And I'm thinking about myself as well. I'm not, you know, self-depleting to please a purpose. No, there's no self-depletion here. I did that my entire life. I depleted myself to full, fulfill somebody else's purpose. No, I am fulfilling myself while I fulfill someone, while i help helped to fulfill someone else's purpose. And that can only come from love.
2: friend. Who is also, he's, a, he's an aggressive coach. He's a facilitator. He's someone who always makes me jealous when I look at his background from the wonderful <laughs> island that he's, he's situated in <laughs> in Grenada. Creating and cultivating intimate conversations. A lot of times I talk about, it's about building bridges, not building walls. And my friend, Akasha. But you, have to, you have to say yes to yourself first before they could say yes to you. And I think a lot of times that's what we don't tend to do. We, like you said, you you had all those thoughts, you had those challenges in front of you, zero money in the bank, and you could have easily psyched yourself out with, oh, this is not right, this is a sign. But for you, it's actually, I'm gonna lean more into, okay, I wanna make this happen, and therefore that's the motivator that pushed me past the fear, because this is what I wanna do. And you recognize the value you've had on the people that you were given for free. A lot of times we don't do that. We don't. I've been writing and thinking about this, that self-love
12: is essential to fulfilling our purpose in the world. And by self-love, I mean, like I think of love as an acronym. You know, where we're leading ourselves, observing ourselves, valuing ourselves like you just named, like valuing the contribution I make, and then empowering ourselves to take the next action like self-love, self-leadership, self-observation, self-value, self-empowerment. And it might sound like a lot of selves. <laughs> it kind of is, but it's really, I promise you, that is really not an egoic, sort. well, the ego is involved in some ways because we yeah. need the ego to actually take some action. But I don't mean it in the sense of like, be full of yourself. Although I do kind of mean it in a sense of be full of yourself, maybe capital S self or soul or something that's synonymous with God or the universe but be full of that. Be full of that and lead yourself from that place. Observe yourself, value yourself, empower yourself from those places. And then I think then purpose becomes clearer. The next step that we need to take becomes clearer. Sometimes even if it doesn't feel like we are the ones taking the next step. I've been in so many situations, Shopee, where then once I, once I said yes, I end up in the place and I'm like, Hold on, or oh, did I get transported here again? <laughs> All I remember was saying yes. And then the next thing I know I'm doing a workshop or I'm collecting a check or I'm landing in this new country that I've never been before, or I'm getting married to this amazing woman that I fell in love with. I'm like, okay. So saying yes to ourselves is the prerequisite for saying Yes to life and experiencing our purpose and manifesting that in the world, expressing what we stand for in the world. So yes to what you're saying, like saying yes to ourselves first and loving ourselves first. I think that self-discovery and self-love is a prerequisite to understanding and discovering our purpose and allowing that to unfold more in the world. You know, whether that's in leadership or whatever the thing is that we're doing. I think this is what I think
2: so as you began to go on that journey getting more clients stepping into the world what was that path what did that path open up for you because you went from just focused on coaching to doing a lot more intentional work in particular areas
12: yeah this is where I got to like my studies you asked about you know like my doctoral thing and because the more, I, the more I engage in coaching, the more I realize really truly what I am k- super curious about. If someone were to like, you know, hold me over like a precipice and say, if you don't tell me what matters most to you, I will throw you over there. And I'll be like, Groove,
4: human groove, Let me go.
12: <laughs> so it became clearer to me that what I am most curious about and interested in is how we grow and develop as human beings, how we make sense of the world. And so then this took me to a path of like, how do I learn more about how we grow and develop? How we make sense of ourselves? How we make sense of the world around us? How we make sense of God? Whatever, how do we make sense? So I searched and I found this uh, program, the university in Santa Barbara called Fielding, and they do a lot of this exploration You know, they started off, they have their roots in integral theory Ken Wilbur stuff. You know, looking at these multiple lines of development and different levels of systems through its equal quadrants, and they mix that with some social justice work. Because it also mattered to me how people from marginalized groups also grow and develop. How how Afro-Caribbean people make sense of their world. You know, cause we've been through a ton. Like our marginalized people have been through a ton. Humans have been through a ton, but I think some of us have been through more tons than others. And I think African people have been through more tons than others. And so I, I wanted to understand that a little bit more as well. Like how do we facilitate equity and justice for more of us, even while, and for me, facilitating that so that people can grow and feel liberated and feel healed and become more of who they are. So I went and studied that. I went and studied that at that in where I could choose whatever I wanted to study. You know, they are, they're very much principled and like self-directed learning. It's a place truly, I think, and the essence of it is for adult learners. Come and find people that you want to study with. Ask them to mentor you and write study, write, talk,
2: and yeah, an experiment. So I loved it. You find it challenging leading into that side of things when you're looking at people from African backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds, when a lot of the literature and education is not skewed towards that or doesn't have any real research in, in, in our background. Oh, yeah, very challenging. It's one of the things I've been making a
12: fuss about lately, you know, uh, maybe over the past three, four years or so. Actually, even beyond that, once I was doing my dissertation, because every theory I find were some older living or dead white man who wrote something about how we make sense of the world, who sometimes learned this from their kids, or their clients or patients, you know, who look just like them. So we aren't represented in those theories oftentimes. Even while I, I can sometimes hold Shopi that, you know, the tension between, yeah, we're all humans, right? And some of these things will be common amongst us. And at the same time, that we are, there's some particulars to the culture and the social context that we grew up in that makes us different, that makes us unique. And so how do the, our uniqueness also calls for a different approach to the way that we serve each other. And so that's, I mean, there are more and more writings and ideas and theories and concepts that are popping up around, you know, how do we serve people or marginalize. But it's not anywhere close to where it is. And it may very well be that when we research, we're like, okay, it's very similar to what these, you know, four parents came up with. But then we will all be represented. More of us will be represented. So it won't be the same. You know? So it's still worth it to me. Man, there's so many places and people I work with, and even my students, like I teach here in Grenada at the university, teach developmental psychology and the students, we always start off talking about how white the material is. And, you know, really there isn't anything that speaks to more and more material, but there isn't much that speak to us. So I say, listen, part of our responsibility here as co-learners is to color the theory. To add some color to the theory, add some color to this work, add some color to psychology and the way that different groups of people make sense. And so that's a part of our responsibility. We're not going to throw out the existing theory, even while we recognize the tension that these theories also bring some liberating qualities and they also have some confining qualities. It's a part of our role to identify both and to elevate the liberatory possibilities and to dampen the constraining ones by partly by bringing more theory and ideas about how other people make sense of the world, indigenous people, black people, people of color, you know, and so on and so on. So yes, it's a challenge. And I know more and more people are addressing this challenge. And I love that. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's a necessary thing. I think that's one of the most inclusive things we can do at a sort of large scale, you know, sort of global scale and include the voices of more of us into our theories.
2: multi award-winning creative entrepreneur, he's someone who talks about visibility a lot. In I think he's struck by it. If you're not visible, you're invisible. So as you know, he's a, he's a publicity expert who's been in the game for almost like two decades. He sits on several boards. You'll have seen him popping up on, on, on Good Morning Britain as well a number of times over, over the years. But I had the pleasure of just spending the next hour or so just learning from, from true. What's been some, some key lessons you've learned that you can share over the last 22 years?
13: Patience, little brother. <laughs> Patience is definitely one of them. Like just. Having that level of patience, I have to exercise because sometimes it gets really, really intense and it's just knowing when to pull away from a certain situation. And another key lesson is just to solve things, solutions, you know, solutions to problems. Like if there's a problem, we always talk about it. We always find a solution. And even if it's a solution that we both don't necessarily agree with or... One side's agree and another side doesn't agree. We have to find a solution. We have to find a common ground. Otherwise, it's just going to fester and fester and fester. I'm saying love, just because the reason why I'm willing to find solutions and sacrifice and silence my sometimes my own wants and needs is because of love, and it's because I appreciate and love, you know, my wife and I. I don't mind sacrificing my own wants and needs for her. My wife and my kids are probably the two people that I will sacrifice my my wants and needs for. And again, yeah, just constantly communicating and and learning how to coexist with, with one another, learning what and appreciating that we're not gonna be the same tomorrow that we are today and that we are ever evolving beings and that we may change and that the person who you met 20 years ago isn't going to be the same person today. And that is so huge. I hear so many people saying, you're just not the same anymore. You're not the same anymore. You're not the same person who I met. No, of course I'm not. You know, we, we are we're beings. We're meant to change. We're meant to evolve every day. We're meant to grow. We're meant to, as humans, we, we have to change and move forward and if I'm the same person or if you want me to be the same person that we met back in the day, 20 years ago, then I'm not the person for you because I'm not a person that's going to stay stagnant. I am always going to evolve and grow and change. And you have to keep up with that. You have to move with that. That's something that we both understand. And, you know, and we both push for and we both excel, and we both like, okay, let's, what's the next thing? How could we get you to the next point in your professional life or in your spiritual life or in your You know, in your family life, like what what can we do to help each other move and evolve and grow, both pushing for growth. And I think that's it's just key, that is for us. Yeah, I love that.
2: You are constantly being reintroduced to that new person that your partner's growing to and vice versa, which is why you need to create the time to get to know that person. It's like back in the day when you were dating and you're getting to know someone, it's exactly the same thing throughout your relationship. What happens a lot of times people don't have that or don't create that time. And therefore you're like, who is that? That's a stranger. But no, the person's just grown. and You don't want them to stay stuck
13: You've got to be receptive to that growth. You've got to be so So example, last week I had a speaker engagement and it was in Birmingham. So I thought, let me take my wife with me. It was in the evening. And I didn't know what type of event it was, but she came. She came straight from work. It was an evening event, an evening thing. As soon as we got there, she refused to get out of the car. And I was like, "Well, babe, what's wrong?" She's like, "How could you bring me to this event? You know, everyone's in ball gowns and black. So I'm in my work attire and blah blah blah." And in my head, I'm thinking, "But babe, like, you're here to support me. You're not an attendee of this event. Like, you are here to support me. No one ain't looking at you like that." And she's like, "You don't know me. You know, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "But previously, that this wouldn't be a problem. You would come with your my camera and blah blah blah, and you would take photos and stuff. But today." it's a big issue like and it was she wouldn't get out of the car and um and in the end she got out of the car or, or or whatnot and we went in and she still kept going on about this thing and and then we were there at the event I did my speaking thing we left because um obviously I had finished my speaking thing She still kept going on about this thing we got in the car started crying about this thing and I'm like babe like it's not that serious like Come off it, like what's going on she's like you haven't even apologized blah blah blah, 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 blah. So I'm in my head I'm thinking apologize for what exactly I didn't know what type of event it was number one number two it's not that deep like he wasn't an attendee he was with me like I'm not even an attendee I'm just going to do a job anyway we got home still going on I I just thought, you know what? Let me just apologise and just become sorry. I didn't realise what type of event it was. Blah blah blah. She's like, you see, that's all it took was an apology. Blah 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 blah. And the point that I'm trying to make is, a few years ago, that wouldn't have even mattered to her. Like she, it wouldn't have even phased her in the slightest. I know that to be a fact. But for some reason now, she's obviously evolving and more conscious about. the the spaces that she's in and, and how people want to view her being my wife, there is now, I believe, an expectation. And she's almost saying, actually, because I've evolved, she's evolved in her own right, but she has to evolve as my wife being in this partnership. And I didn't click that. And she did and I think that's the reason why she's upset because she's now evolved into this space as being Dr. True Powell's wife, not the True Powell from five years ago but the Dr. True Powell that has this visibility and this following and, and so forth and, that, and in some ways wants to, to mirror that is really interesting because I had to step outside of myself and have a think about why is Tara so upset about this today and she wouldn't have been this upset a few years ago and we had to understand that and unpack it and and understand it and I had to be receptive to that and I had to appreciate appreciate that I could have quite easily said you know what oh you saw you know it's a minor babe like we've done this before blah 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 but actually the agreement that we have together is we both need to be susceptible to one another's changes and and their growth and their Evolution, So I had to receive that and I had to respect that and I had to apologize for that. And now I have adapted my behavior. So if I know that I'm going to another event and I want her to come with me, irrespective as to whether I know the dress code or not, I have to find out what the dress code is and I have to give that information over so those informed decisions could be made.
2: That's a powerful example. I think it speaks to, like you do a lot of work in inclusion space, where a lot of times talk about how people just want to feel seen and heard and very easily they can just be dismissed. I like remember what your wife you is saying is like, she wanted you to hear her. <laughs> it's an apology. And which require for you to, like you said, step outside of yourself. What's really, really going on here? What's at play here? It's not just this, it's bigger than that. And you going down that journey meant, okay, now I know I I have, have to pivot. But you start with you having the willingness, because it takes two people to be able to see her and to see what was really a play. It's a powerful lesson, which also requires a lot of, I want to say, letting down the ego and just being willing to just lean it. I think a lot of times our ego can get in the way of, are you tripping for you? I brought you here. So we can, we can go into that, 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 that red-haired kind of mode as opposed to, nah, let's, let's, let's approach this differently.
13: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, you know, we, we could, we could really kind of like, what were you talking about? Like, I brought you here. I, yeah, this is me, like you're here for me type of thing. But it's, we, we are genuinely not like that. And I think as a couple and as a married couple, we very rarely argue. I wouldn't say we don't have any arguments. We very rarely argue, and I think it's because we both have the ability to try and understand the perspective of, of somebody else so we can find a common ground and, and meet in the middle. And when I seen that she was genuinely upset by something that really didn't faze me or I didn't think why she was upset, I had to do some soul searching. I had to, there was more there to unpack. It wasn't just, it wasn't just going to this event. There was a lot more there to unpack and a lot more there that I had to acknowledge and recognize and adapt my behavior in order for her to feel included in this evolution and journey of, of me and my wife. Because part of my brand, which I'm sure we'll speak about, is my family. So now, by default, they have an expectation. So I might go to an event and wear my colors and, and be my personal brand, but they're also a part of my personal brand that I have done intentionally. But because of that, they have an expectation now, and I didn't recognize that. So they can't just rock up and be like, oh, okay, yeah, the the, the, they've now have to live up to this, the brand that I've created for them and myself. The pleasure, the
2: joy. Of talking to a friend of mine who is an investor, consultant, board advisor, someone who's worked in fintech and that DNI space for a like decade plus. She does a lot of different things. She's won multiple awards. I have Chanel and Sandal House. So people tend to have, I'm going to say, like big, audacious kind of goals and there are times when those goals can feel overwhelming how do you yes. deal with that
14: oh my gosh like yeah they say if your goal doesn't completely drown you it's probably not big enough and definitely like mine completely floors me um, in the fact that what I'm trying to do is like move the market, right? And, and shape change what the future should look like. And so that is a huge, huge goal. But I tend not to think or reflect back on the bigger picture, but really take one step at a time. It's like people say, you know, it's game of inches. Mm. So all you do is you know, move forward an inch at a time. And then you look back over a period of years and actually you realize that it's compound impact, right? And effect, and actually it's all contribute towards you being able to move something. Because I think if I woke up every morning and I focused on the big goal, right? is to, Which is to completely change the landscape and provide access to those that do not have and to kind of make the world a better place. is a lot for one person to do and then you think how the heck am i going to do that by myself but you know i focus on the small things that i can do every single day and then eventually i believe that it will all align and god willing in 10 years i can look back and then take stock and see you know what has moved and what change has been made but i try not to reflect on that every single day no i can't it's too overwhelming
2: (laughs) Well, I love love that mixture of the recognition of the overwhelm with practical steps to keep on moving forward. Like you said, Game of is day in, day out, you have that big thing that you're kind of working towards. And you've won a lot of awards. You've worked in some great organizations. You run your own organization. I'm curious, what's your proudest moment so far in your career?
14: Ooh. In my career, do you know what? I would say something a bit more generic. I'm proud that I'm still going. I think I'm I'm proud that I'm still going. I am proud that I'm still moving forward. Because life is tough, you know? Mm. And um I think as you said earlier, like people see all the people see the glamorous side of things, right? They see the the panel talks and they see like the awards and you know the press, but they don't see the the knockbacks right and, and the down moments that happen often, which can put people off, right? and and it has done for many, but I think the fact that I've continued to pick myself up and keep on going, I think that's what I'm super proud of. And I think I don't say enough to myself or actually even out loud, but I am proud of me. I'm proud of the fact that Chanel continues to keep moving forward despite all of the challenges, right? So, yeah, that I, I guess that's what I'm proud. Of. I, I wouldn't put it down to any one single thing. Yeah, and rather on the fact that I continue to move forward an inch at a time.
2: I love that. I should love to, I am proud of me. I think that's something that we do not, generally speaking, say to ourselves a lot. So that's actually something no. that's pretty powerful.
14: Yeah, we, we don't. And I definitely do not at all. I'm too focused on oh. moving forward to do a stop take and be <laughs> like, oh, Chanel, well done. You know, it's, it's always, oh, Chanel, you've done this thing, but okay, how can you do it better? Or actually you should have done that to be better. And we, yeah, we need to, we need to pause more. I need to pause more and say, Chanel, well done. Yeah, we should, we should all make that a habit actually to say to ourselves, well done, I'm proud of you and what you've done.
2: I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with the founder of Resilience Cubed, and we're going to talk about resilience a lot today. And you're going to hear about why in a minute. Apart from that, you know, he runs his own consultancy company. Today, we we'll just go a little bit deeper. We unpack some of that. And Alec Grant is in the studio with me. I think a lot of times we let life let happen to us. We don't take the time to actually create the kind of lifestyle that we want. And I think in the culture in the world where we're always on, we're always on the go, we're always moving. It's it's hard for us to slow down. We're like, well, what is a lifestyle that I want to create? What am I willing to put up with to create a lifestyle? What am I willing to sacrifice to create that lifestyle? Having those conversations is super important because then we now know, okay, I'm exerting my energy in this way. Because it allows me to create that future lifestyle that I'm, what I'm heading towards rather than I'm just in a hamster wheel going around, around, and around, around. But one day I'm going to get there. I'm going to stop. and like, No, one day never happens. One day is such a great phrase. I think one day I'm going to go do. In fact, there's a quote I had on my phone from night, which said yesterday, you said tomorrow. And I've had under for years because it always reminded me like now there is no one day. It's, it's now. And you start to build those things and put them to place. Just like you were able to be like three years. This is it. You can go into the office and they're like, "Is this? Is this a reaction?" We're like, no, it's not. This is planned. Like, I'm good. You were just the final confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm out. You've touched it a number of times. You, you mentioned um, your wife. Even having that, I guess that partnership there, having that person there to have that conversation with, it's such a really important thing and I guess it leads me to the, the other part of of your story where you lost your wife which you've, you've talked about in the past in other books and different things like that but even that experience for you losing someone who is your partner who's your best friend who you planned and you've had all this different things for the future with I mean what was what was it for you like going through that experience
10: oh boy yeah so many elements so many elements to it i i I think to start with as much as the initial impact of my wife passing away was significant one thing was really clear in my mind and and that thing was in order for me to do the best for my boys, I need to get myself into the best place that I possibly can. And I don't know where that thought came from. It was like an overwhelming thing that that was there. It was like, and, and I'm talking about within days of Hazel dying. It was work on yourself, work on yourself, work on yourself, because you're going to be no use to the boys if you don't. And in the subsequent time period, I remember, and I've got it all upon my wall now. Still, you can't pour from an empty cup. Take care of yourself first. And I keep coming back to a, a related you know, phrase when I talk to people about this, which is, you know, most of us have probably all been on a flight, and. And when they, the, the air staff go through their demonstrations and they say, put your, when they talk about the masks falling from, from the ceiling, and they say, put your mask on first before you tend to someone else that is in your care. And so I don't know how I did it, but I knew that I needed to, figure out uh, a way to obviously i couldn't tend to myself in isolation because i had a newborn baby brought him home at three days and a three-year-old but within a matter of weeks i was talking to a therapist and counselor i engaged with a grief uh, a grief uh, charity who uh, i went to some group therapy sessions I contacted Widowed and Young, which is a charity. And over the course of that first year, put in place a number of things, which I now know to be very pivotal to, to me getting through that first year and subsequent years. You know, how was I being guided to that? I have absolutely no idea, because in the midst of the pain and the anguish and everything else, there was some clarity around a few things. I re- I remember one of my relatives said to me, not, maybe three years after Hazel died. We were concerned about you. I said, Of course you were. She said, No. You were so clear about certain things. We didn't know how or why you were clear about them. But you were saying, this needs to be done like this, this needs and like and we thought, is it grief? Is it something else? Is he whatever? He's it losing it. And so we, you know, we wanted to just keep an eye on you and check in you know, But she said clearly, those were absolutely the right things that you should have been doing. I don't know how you knew or did those things because uh, you shouldn't have been able to. You should not have been able to have cloudy around certain things that you did. But somehow you did. Like I said, I don't know how. It just happened. They just happened. The, The the you know I'm not necessarily a religious man. I'm spiritual. Maybe something, the universe, Hazel, my grandmother. now, was guiding me, supporting me, and, and bringing that clarity of thought. But yeah, that those immediate, you know, that immediate time period and, and the subsequent time afterwards. You know, don't get me wrong. Was I crying on many occasions? Just you know, in my car, walking down the street, out in a restaurant. Yeah, I was. I cried a lot. Uh, I was upset. I didn't sleep for seven months, you know, other than one or two hours a night. If that, uh, for, for seven months straight, I sat on. I slept on the sofa for seven months straight, because I couldn't sleep in. You know what was our marital bed? Mm-hmm. You know, at times, you know, my my youngest son, you know, the Moses basket would bring it down, put it next to me on the sofa, feed him, put him to sleep or whatever, and I would be asleep on. On the sofa, even though my, at one point my back was aching and you know, killing me or whatever, but I just couldn't bring myself to and sleep in what was hazel on my bed. So, yeah, tough times, but somehow I found a way. For